Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to another episode of Scholar Tea. I am Cameron Carl. And I'm Shauna Marie. (laughs) (laughs) And we are two scholars giving you the tea. Shauna didn't flip the script on y'all. She used both her names, okay? (laughs) So this is our season finale of season three of Scholar Tea. And we just want to thank y'all for sticking with us uh, this season as we have dropped our episodes months kind of after we recorded them, but y'all are still texting us, talking about you got gems out of those conversations. So we just appreciate y'all's patience and the grace this season. And shout out to our editor and producer, Tia, for getting us to finish line. That's right. Shout out to Dr. Tia. Future doctor. She she gonna get it though. Name it. Well, let's do our check-in. Uh, temp check, because it's about to be fall, even though it's 97 degrees in some states right now. If you were a back to school outfit what would you be and why i love this question where are you getting these questions from that's a good one so for me you know new semester starting the semester with tenure for the first time and promoted so i was like what outfit did i want to wear that i couldn't afford to wear and for me it was like you know everyone got new shoes at the beginning of the school year so a fresh pair of jordans with nice polo nautica you remember nautica used to be the thing back mm-hmm. in the day a nautica mm-hmm. polo um, and some 5'11 Levi. I love some 5'11 Levi's. They just fit right. But I never had, as a child, as a youth growing up, I never owned a pair of Jordans. Like my mother, would, she was like, I'm not paying that much money. Even though when we had the money, she would not buy me Jordans. So recently I bought myself a pair of Jordans and they're the 11s, the red and black ones. I was like, I need a big purchase when I got tenure. So I was like, let me buy myself some Jordans. And I now I understand why my mother would not buy them for me because I clean the mugs, scotch guarded, spray the mugs down, clean them every time I wear them. Now I got like two or three pair now, but I remember being like, oh, I really want some Jordans when I was back to school season and I never got them. And now I understand why. Cause my mother just was like, you're going to grow out of them. I'm not putting that much money into that for back to school. I'm not sure. I know you are mother and you have them back to school fits, but she was like, we can use this money other places. So back to school, new year, new me, new title, new promotion. So I'm getting me my back to school fit on. All I heard was ching, 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 ching. You said, oh, now I'm on my 10th pair. I get the on sale one. Money. (laughs) Yeah, no, I just took Kennedy uh, back to school shopping just yesterday for the third time it feels like and I'm like you got three outfits and they cost how much money shoot this stuff better last to your uh, third year in college because I ain't doing it I was gonna say where do you take like I remember Kmart like where do kids go now for the back to school shopping where like you do you go to the mall see Kmart that was when we were feeling fancy well they don't do the mall anymore for those of you that aren't aware you know Kennedy's on this exploration you know these are one of those moments where I'm kind of maybe living through her or maybe even placing my own experiences on her a little bit because I didn't know what colleges were really like I didn't know what the Ivy League was and so I'm trying to make her at least understand what colleges are so I'm taking her to different universities and colleges just so she could see like she can compare contrast like HBCU PWI private public you know all those things right so we were in Chicago she wanted to go to freaking Urban Outfitters she wanted to go to Free people. Free people is not free. A dress is like $300. It's cotton. I had a phase in my adulthood where I was in urban in the their clearance section, though. You can find some things in the clearance section. Me and, me and Jonathan and McElderry, we loved a good urban visit. 
you know. You know, these unemployed creatures, they live in really nice. She didn't even gravitate. Look for the clearance section. She turned around and let me tell you, this little tiny, she don't even know. She probably looked through the bag now. There's this little tiny some kind of shirt. Y'all, you know, uh, we are well endowed women. And this thing was like a medium small. And it's it stopped at the, at the start of the cleavage and it ended at the bottom of it, right? Like that was the shirt. And I'm like, I don't know where she think this little 17 year old thinks she was about to wear this shirt. And I don't do the respectability politics. She be doing whatever for the most part. But nah, it, it was like a, a Little Mermaid clamshell. And uh, it was like $400. No, no. Shout, shout out to Ariel. Well, that's who that's who, uh, Urban, that's who Urban markets to. They're going to market to Kennedy's demographic, you know? They, they did. And it was $700 for a candle. So no. So that's what kids, she's, well, can we go to Aero Pastel? What? Spell it. Urban Outfitters. Free people. They're, they're not on uh, FUBU. <laughs> But uh, neither are they on like Tommy. No. They're not on any of that stuff. So yeah, she's doing that extra retro, but expensive. Yeah. But she yeah. got herself a little job now. So anyway. What's your I outfit? Yeah, I feel like I need to change it because you went back to school and I was thinking like, the start of the academic year at a college. So I'll go in that direction. It was a leather coat, leather boots up to your knees, maybe higher if you can, a sweater dress, you know, nice comfy uh, neck and uh, a hot Starbucks grande mocha with oat milk. Hold the whipped cream, please. That's my outfit every day if I can help it. I, I love to feel cozy. I love to feel comfortable. I love fall. It's my favorite season. So that outfit sounds pump. hot as hell and I'm sweating. Oh, no. I mean, that's why, you know, it's so cold in the D, baby. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I like it because it's nice and comfy and cozy. You could take the layers off if you get a little warm on the inside of a building, but. I love a good old latte or a mocha with some oat mm-hmm. milk. So let's do the rundown. So in this season finale episode, we are obviously going to highlight and do what we usually do, our Scholar of the Week. We are going to spill some tea this summer. SCOTUS was acting up, so we need to talk about it. We have a wonderful interview with two fabulous guests um, who have co-authored Black queer literature and also work in higher education. So Really excited for the conversation and share that with Chaz and Frederick. We have our What's Problematic, our Jokes of the Week, and we have some celebrations and affirmations to leave y'all with until our next season. So let's get into it, Shana. So this week's Scholar of the Week is Stacey Robinson, an Arthur Schomburg Fellow who completed his Master's of Fine Art at the University of Buffalo. His art speculates futures where Black people are free from colonial influences. Stacey's collected works reside at Modern Graphics in Berlin, Bucknell University, and the Schomburg Center for Research in Black culture. Stacey creates multimedia works as a form of Black resistance to colonial America. In detail, his drawings, paintings, comics, writings, and performances examine Black culture and the Black body as a technology from past to speculative future and a narrative that addresses ideas and the intricacies of love, sex, religion, and decolonization. Stacey illustrates the conflicts of integration, miseducation, unresolved slavery, unresolved emancipation, and Black people's lack of ability to self-organize and self-govern. In this, he appropriates images of Black trauma to incite conversation to action 
and dismantle ideas of derogatory Black relations, pacificity, and docility. Stacey Robinson currently serves as an Associate Professor of Graphic Design and Design for Responsible Innovation at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So if you're ever around um, visiting New York, uh, make sure you drop into the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture and check out some of Stacey's work. Shout out to Stacey and the contributions that they are making to the field. So let's share our thoughts on the recent SCOTUS ruling, the full dismantling of affirmative action across U.S. higher education. Uh, This past June, in a consolidated decision in two cases, States for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus University of North Carolina and Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus President and Fellows of Harvard College, the Supreme Court decided that affirmative action is unconstitutional. And on July 3rd, the Boston Nonprofit Lawyers for Civil Rights LCR, filed a complaint against Harvard with the Department of Education to challenge the discriminatory policy of offering preferential treatment to overwhelmingly white applicants with family ties to Harvard donors and Harvard alumni, says Michael A. Kippens, an LCR litigation fellow. Applicants with these ties are six to seven times more likely to be admitted. I feel like the gates have not just opened, they've fallen off. (laughs) What the hell? Is going on. No, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. We knew it was coming. Like, I live in a state, the one of the 10 states that for affirmative action has been gone for a while now yeah. um, in the state admissions uh, policies. I also am wondering, with the politicizing of the court, what is our strategy of what's next? For those of us that understand the contributions and what diversity means, racial diversity means for an institution of higher learning. And I can't wait for Uyan Poon's book to drop for us to really dig into the understanding the racial politics, understanding Asian Americans and their being used as pawns in this conversation about affirmative action. Because um, I think there's some historical and political implications for that. And how do we interrogate that in a way to then strategize and mobilize for what's next? Being in Florida and the conservative movement, what's next is, you know, affirmative action gets struck down. I think what's next is then thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and curriculum and curriculum design. I think that's what's next to go up to, to the Supreme Court. So what's our strategy around thinking about how we fight this politically um, and in the law? Because the conservatives have already outlined and plotted this for the past 20 years, and now they're executing. So what is our strategy? now moving forward. And the key word that you keep using is strategy. Like mm, being in Michigan, having been here when Prop 2 did pass in 2008, and then seeing the steady decline of uh, minoritized individuals in our schools as a result, I I think that what we're failing to acknowledge is the fact that there needs to be a concerted, organized strategy. And perhaps there is one that we aren't privy to, but I'd like to see where it is and how is it functioning? Because um, to your point, like the conservative movement has been looking at this and finding different angles to attack it in the courts for years at this point. And, and alongside other key points of legislation, it has been pushed off to the side now because they kept whittling away. I felt like, you know, yes, the, the piece around admissions and legacy admissions is a, a core component to some of the things that you're seeing around how do you maintain power and privilege pockets, but 
it just felt very reactionary knee jerk. And it does not seem like it's tied to or connected to anything else that's supposed to offer additional waves to counteract against some of the batterings that we were receiving, legislatively speaking, by the conservative movement. So I'd be curious to know for those that are writing legislation, for those that are in the courts, for those that actually love doing policy work in our politicians? Like, in what ways are you outlining, uh, I guess, a, a strategy tree to attending to this measure, to these issues, so that we can offset some of the imbalance that has occurred as a result of this most recent action? It's hurting people like your son, the third graders. I think what was cited in the in the Supreme Court, the defense, where they're citing California when California implemented or uh, banned affirmative action and the decline of Black enrollment at the state's highest, you know, learning mm -hmm. institutions. There are other states with that example as well. And that's going to be now, as we, we can foresee, that'll be a national trend. And it's only going to impact those Black and Brown children that are in the classroom right, right now, right? I think our university has talked about how they have gotten around that as a state that has banned affirmative action the past decade, how they have gotten around that in terms of their admissions policies and recruitment policies and other things. Florida State University, University of Florida, F, well, FIU maybe, but FIU University is still not representative of the state population. And there's a institution of higher learning that is, you know, gets funding from the state and doesn't even represent the demographic of the state, right? Like I think that's the, the true argument of these state institutions not even representing the minoritized representation in their state. So like, how do you hold institutions accountable to to thinking about now that we ban affirmative action what role does diversity racial diversity play in representation in thinking about the student experience we know for sure faculty and staff have not been represented specifically at these historically white institutions to the degree that they need to be but there's no accountability in what that looks like moving forward and i really would be curious to see if there could also be some kind of thoughtfully laid out argument that is successful in helping people reach across this aisle and understanding why this is important and this matters. And I know it comes down to fundamentally helping some white folks understand why people of color matter, why our lives have value. But beyond that, I'd be curious to see if someone's also laying out some groundwork for how do you develop an argument to the extent that people can hear it and foster some connectivity to some of the issues that we're talking about instead of furthering this and widening this divide that is based on whiteness, but maybe could be undergirded by care, concern, and love. The issue is those that you're trying to convince, so to speak, feel like they are victimized. So People hear affirmative action, and that means white people hear affirmative action, and I'm overgeneralizing, but white people who are against affirmative action hear it and say, you are taking a seat away from my son or from my grandson. And that is not like the misinformation around the policy is so ingrained now that it's even have a conversation of the benefits of, of a racially diverse student body. People can't hear that because they feel like you are taking something away from them by making space and room to just say, take a second look or like, like really think critically about who we are admitting into the institution who has historically been at the margins, minoritized, marginalized. Like they, we can't even engage in the conversation because they feel like you're taking something away from them. And that's what I mean. Like, how can we offset that feeling? But then also there's a misconception that it's only the, the smartest and the brightest that get into some of these schools that we're fighting over right now, you know, at this legislative level. I mean, that then impacts all institutions, right? Yeah, I'm 
sorry, I'm just going to say there were some dumb dumbs at the University of Pennsylvania that they were not the smartest, but they could afford to get in because of who their parents were. And these particular students that I'm thinking about, some of them, yeah, their names were on the buildings. They were not going to class. They were barely passing their classes, but they graduated. It's not about merit. It's not about skillfulness. And so how do we use that knowledge to help people understand what's really happening? Oh, that's what's happening in these nasty, nasty Supreme Court academic streets, y'all. Well, I'm really excited because we have uh, some guests today that um, are going to offer us a different perspective into higher education through some of the creative works that they're endeavoring in. Um, Originally from Detroit, Frederick Smith is a graduate of the Missouri School of Journalism, Loyola University, Chicago, and Loyola Marymount University. He lives in San Francisco, and he's the author of In Case You Forgot, and Busy Ain't the Half of It, co-authored with Chaz Lamar Cruz, as well as Play It Forward, Right Side of the Wrong Bed, and Down for Whatever. Also, Chaz Lamar Cruz was raised in the deserts and cities of Southern California by his Louisiana maternal grandmother. He's a graduate of Cal State LA and the University of San Francisco. Chaz is a poet, educator, and creative who writes from a place of possibility and wonder. And I just think possibility, wonder, uh, creativity, Uh, These are some things that we also need to bring into the Academy. And so I'm really excited to uh, share with the listeners today, Frederick and Chaz's perspectives. Hey, 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 we are excited to have Frederick and Chaz joining us for our Scholar Tea. Welcome to the Scholar Tea Streets. Thank y'all for making time during this wonderful Pride Month. Uh, to engage with the Scholar T community. Both of you have extensive resumes and extensive experiences. So we are really excited to, to learn from both of you. I want to start off by if you all could tell us about your journey in higher education and specifically working in student affairs, DEI work. How did you come to, to doing that work? Okay, um, I can start first. So I'm Frederick Smith, uh, Dr. Frederick Smith. I use he, him pronouns. And I currently serve as the Associate Vice President for Equity and Community Inclusion at San Francisco State University. It's a position I've been in for about four years. You know, in this role, I'm responsible for all things related to DEI, um, student, staff, faculty for the campus, and I'm part of the President's Cabinet in this role. Prior to that, I was um, at Cal State LA, Director of the Cross-Cultural Center's Uh, for many years, but had started out in an entry-level position there as a coordinator, then assistant director, then director there. And before that, grad school at Loyola University Chicago, undergrad at University of Missouri. And I grew up in good old Detroit, Michigan, where I'm a product of Detroit public schools. Um, And I will say my role to DEI really was just thinking about like my growing up years, whether it's in Detroit and you know, encountering issues of class because Detroit's a Black city, but we got a lot of highs and lows um, and in-betweens there. And so, you know, really encounters with class because I grew up in a very working class family. Um, And my first time, like, kind of seeing Black people with, like, money, money and things growing up in Detroit. And then I would say my other road to DEI was just thinking about all my undergrad experiences at predominantly white institutions um, like Mizzou, like Loyola, Chicago, where, um, you know, encountering difference for the first time, where Blackness, queerness, other identities weren't always accepted fully in different ways or you encounter challenges. Um, that really opened up my eyes to the importance of DEI work, especially for 
um, students of marginalized and minoritized um, communities. Last thing I'll add is that while I was in Los Angeles working at Cal State LA, that's where I pursued and finished my doctoral degree, Educational Leadership for Social Justice at Loyola Marymount University. And so all those experiences really shaped and drove my interest in both student affairs and in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Um, and I'm so grateful for all the experiences that I've had. And it was at Cal State LA where I met Chaz. And I'm Chaz Lamar Cruz, and I am an Angelina. I am residing in LA. My path to DEI work started during my undergraduate career. So I went to I studied at Cal State LA from undergraduate career, and I studied to be a fifth grade teacher, multiple subject teacher. And so my goal was always to be in education. I wanted to be an educator because I thought things can really be enhanced. I knew that um, just being a kid, middle school, high school, I always tried to make things a little bit better in education. Um, so I went to school to become a fifth grade teacher. But during that time, I also worked at our DEI department, uh, which at the time Fred was the director of uh, the Cross-Cultural Center. And I became the student coordinator for gender and sexuality. And so that is where I first started to see that there's a whole world of education outside of the classroom. And so I started to do that work. And so I went to graduate school at the University of San Francisco to master in um, organizational leadership. But all of the things that I did was all DEI related. So I worked with all the DEI departments at every institution I was with or DEI initiatives on campus. I knew after grad school, I wanted to eventually become a director by 30 of a DEI division at the university. And that happened. So I, I served as assistant director of the UC Davis LGBTQIA Research Center. From there, I returned to my back to my alma mater, Cal State LA, as assistant director of the Cross Cultural Center, and then returned to UC Davis as director of their Cross Cultural Center. They asked me to come back, and I did. Yeah, my path to DEI work was really just my path into education. I always wanted to enhance things in DEI. I just naturally fell into as a person with multiple marginalized identities and seeing that things can be better and people who had similar identities to me, how they could belong. Um, in these academies. And so I work to do that. And now I'm currently in between positions in two large organizations, DEI-focused um, organizations. And outside of that, as you know, I also am a writer and um, I am writing. Thank you both. Um, it's exciting to learn not only your background, but then how like paths cross and how the universe brings people together in, in those ways. Um, so Frederick, we know that you have been a solo author, but what made you both want to collaborate on your first co-authored book in case you forgot? Yes, yeah, so I had always written solo, my novels, and I um, really enjoyed it. So I had a novel come out in 2015, and that year I decided to go back for a doctoral program, you know, LMU, which I just mentioned. And so I took a few years off from writing fiction, um, to do all the academic writing stuff for a dissertation. But like, as soon as I crossed that stage and got the gown and the beautiful gowns and got the degree and everything, <laughs> um, my publisher, Bold Strokes Books, um, at the time, um, emailed and said, it's been about four years since we've had a novel from you. We would love to have you write one. Um, we would like something else from you. I, I had my laptop. I took it across the hall because Chad and I were colleagues at the time at Cal State LA. And I showed the email and I said, Chaz, would you want to co-write um, a novel with me? Like it was so spontaneous and so easy because I had already known Chaz as not only as a student affairs professional, 
friend and colleague, but also as a creative, known about um, the poetry work and the uh, spoken word work that Chaz had done. And so I was like, hmm, this would be a fun opportunity for both of us. And so I took it to Chaz. I was like, do you want to co-write a novel? And he said, I said, absolutely. Um, and it was really just that simple. We didn't have an idea at the time. Fred was like, publishing, publishing company is asking me for another book. Would you like to co-write? I said, yeah, let's do it. And then from there, we thought about what we could write, how we were going to actually write together, co-write together, um, because neither one of us has co-written before. I guess like research papers sometimes and like academia mm -hmm. do write like that, but um, creatively, not so much. I was just wondering what, so what is the co-writing process look like? Like, how did you develop? Because now you have multiple books. Like, what was the, pro like, how did you massage out what the process was to co-author? What we decided to do, and I think at the time I was living in West Hollywood, I was living in West Hollywood. And so we would go to the West Hollywood Library on weekends, Saturdays and Sunday mornings. And uh, we'll rent out one of those study rooms. And the library there in West Hollywood is beautiful all glass, mm -hmm. you can look at all the hills, the mountains, the bars, all that kind of stuff. And so we would run out a room for about three, four hours and we would get on our shared document. And um, what we decided to do was that, so in um, the novel, in case you forgot, it follows two main characters, Kenny Kane and Zaire James. And so we decided early on that one of us would take lead on the writing of one of the main characters. Um, and so I took the lead on writing Kenny Kane Chaz took lead on writing Zaire James. And so as we will alternate our chapters and look at the shared document that we were working on, we could see where our progress was. We could see like who was getting further ahead in the story. We could also see where we um, needed the characters to interact and come together as well. And so those chapters we would write together, but in the whole time that we were writing, we would always consult, look at, edit, say, mm, I don't think people talk like that anymore. Or I think someone would feel this way or do this in this situation. And so it was always collaborative, you know, not only the writing process, but also just in the thinking and the thought process behind who and how and what and why these characters would react to different situations. And so, you know, that was really part of the collaboration. I think that kind of fits in with our level of um, both professional friendship, personal friendship, our trust in each other, and knowing that collaborating, you know, would be a positive thing uh, for both of us. That was the most fun of writing that novel during that time. We both were living in a fun city <laughs> and we made it a ritual to meet at a certain time. And then afterward, we would reward ourselves with um, food and libation. So it was great <laughs> because on the cloud, we, every writing session, we would then discuss what's happening. And we didn't really plot a lot for the first novel. We kind of just said, we know this character needs to go through this and that character needs to go through this. And so let's see where this goes. And every time we just would meet af after the end of our uh, writing session and then discuss and then, yeah, and edit. Talk to me about the inspiration behind the novel, the character, like, are they based on you? Are they based on people you know, former students, colleagues? Like, how do you get the inspiration <laughs> for the storytelling, the character development? Well, first, let's go back to some of the backstory about what the novels are about and what we write about. And then we'll talk about the actual um, novels and the inspirations and stuff. So um, for the people listening, um, to the podcast, you know, what my fiction um, and Chaz's fiction has focused on with these novels that we work on are um, primarily Black and queer, Black LGBTQ characters um, set in Los Angeles. You could say that they are both part romance, part reality fiction, part, uh, you know, looking at the fictional experiences of Black and queer 
people of color, queer characters um, in Los Angeles. So that's kind of the backstory to that. Taz, you want to talk about the inspiration for it in yeah. case you forgot? Okay. Yes, in case you forgot. So at the time, we knew we wanted to create a story about two characters navigating big relationship shifts in their lives in the year span. So we knew that. And so I've been a fan of Fred's writing. So I knew one of my favorite characters uh, Fred created was from his second novel, Right Side of the Wrong Bed, Kenny Kane. And it had been few years since Fred uh, wrote that novel. And I said, okay, so this character, Kenny Kane, had dating fiasco. One of my favorite characters, it was a shit show. And I said, well, what would it be like if Kenny had an update? And so first came Kenny. What would Kenny be doing during that time, 2019, I think 2019, during that time? And then we knew we wanted another character. And so the character, Zaire, has some similar traits to what was going on in my life. And at the time, I was going through a divorce. And so I said, I want to write a character going through a divorce. And so that was the aspect of that character. And so, yeah, that's where it came from. We were out there dating, making mistakes, um, living our best lives. And we said we can fictionalize a lot of this stuff. And so we did. I love that. And the, and the centering of Black queer people navigating relationships just like everyone else is, is something that we oftentimes have to search so hard to find ourselves in the literature. So thank you both for, for being committed to, to centering those lived experiences. So how do you integrate the two worlds? What does that look like when you work in higher education and you're writing novels centering Black queer characters? Or, or do you integrate? Are they compartmentalized? Or, or what does it look like um, to navigate these two worlds and, and do this work at the same time? Well, I know the first thing I'll say is there's never enough time you know, in order to do student affairs and higher education work successfully, you know, it, it requires a lot of commitment, investment, sometimes hours after hours, um, and also thinking about wellness. And the same with creativity, you know, you want to do, um, or I say, I like, to, you know, I, I think about my creativity and my creative life all the time when I'm at work, when I'm doing my writing work, I'm thinking about higher education. And so it, it's an interesting blend. Um, a couple of things, fun facts I will share is that um, the character of Kenny Kane in the novel, in case you forgot, actually is a higher ed student affairs practitioner. Had started out working in the first novel, Rise of the Rombed, had started out working in student activities with uh, his best friend, Carlos, who was also a student affairs practitioner. And in the updated novel, in case you forgot, at that point, Kenny had quit the academy and decided to do higher ed consulting, which we know many of us um, who are in the field, think about doing sometimes, you know, leaving the field completely and doing our own businesses. And the character of Carlos, who's the best friend, um, I think is some kind of vice president or associate vice president at the university they had worked at. Worked at. So you can kind of see their career trajectory um, over the years between right side of the wrong bed and in case you forgot. But what I'll say is just, you know, I think as, as people who are both creatives and passionate about higher education, for me, it's a lot of fun. Um, for me, I do feel stretched. For me, I wish that instead of having 24 hours a day, we had like 40 hours in a day. Um, I wish I didn't have to sleep or eat or run to the restroom or any of those kind of things so that I could Blessed. do everything that I want to do. So that's a little bit about me and like having both aspects of careers in my life. Um, I don't know, Chad, what's it like for you navigating both? Yeah, talk about a little bit more of a, in case you forgot. So some of the characters, not just um, Kenny, Carlos, but Zaire also had an academic background in DEI work. So I was writing to manifest certain things too, because I did leave the academy. Well, I'm not in the academy now. Um, I do a lot of DEI um, consulting. 
I've done that for many years. And, but during this time of the writing, I was thinking about what a world would be like if my work wasn't just in the academy. And so um, those characters kind of like had that kind of a lifestyle. But being in education, it kept me aware of a lot of things. It kept me up to date with language, kept me up to date with terminology, ideology. And so it helped in writing this novel or it helps in writing novels, I think. But I do try to keep them separate. I try to keep my personal life separate from higher education, and especially during this work, because so much of it is personal. DEI work so much is directly impacts uh, me on a personal level. And so it's work to keep that uh, my personal life separate from the academy, even though sometimes it feels like I'm always on. When I was working in the academy, it felt like I didn't really have a separation. And I'm sure probably, Fred, uh, at your level, you probably don't have a much of a separation. Yeah, like I could separate, but not separate. So like, for example, I don't keep it a secret from the people at work that I write novels. Um, and in fact, a lot of people are in awe. They're like, you write novels? Like you, you have a creative life. You have a life outside of work that doesn't involve higher education. I'm like, yes, yes, and yes, I do. But I also let like my my, my creative friends and and authors and people who I know, I let them know that I work in higher education because basically that pays the bills to be a creative, so to speak. Contrary to myth, people in um, creative fields don't always make the same kind of money that we would like to. And so, you know, it helps to invest in having a creative life and everything by having the full-time higher education gig. But yeah, my coworkers are very excited about the work that I do outside or sometimes they're shocked when they learn it or students are like, oh my goodness, you write and things like that. And so, you know, that's a nice feeling, but I do make sure that, you know, the boundary I do have is that, you know, for example, when I'm at work, when I'm in that nine to five, my work and my focus is always higher education. Um, But then once the clock turns off and the laptop shuts, you know, from six until whenever, um, it's my creative life. And so that's, that's my main separation. But I do make sure that when I'm in my higher ed role, that's what I'm focused on doing. And it can be a challenge. So like, one of the things that happened. So you know, Chaz and I wrote two novels in case you forgot that came out in 2019. And then busy ain't the half of it, which came out in 2021 or 2022. So in between those two novels, I had um, moved cities. So I moved from Los Angeles to San Francisco. I had gotten a significant uh, promotion. So going from being a director of a cross-cultural center to being an associate vice president, you know, within student affairs, and then also being on the president's cabinet. So my time, whoo, what a learning curve, learning what it's like (laughs) to be part of a cabinet and being, you know, responsible for a team that leads a lot of DEI efforts on a campus, especially a campus like San Francisco State, where activism, opinions, thoughts are like so prevalent. And so when we were writing the second novel together, Busy Ain't the Half of It, Chaz was so good at keeping me on task and was like, Fred, we can't do this book like we did the first one together where, you know, we were kind of meander and create as we went along. Chaz was like, we need an outline. We can know what's going to happen in every single chapter, which helped me out time-wise, helped me out in terms of really supporting me to help us get that project done. And so I really thank Chaz for that. And actually, it's the process I use now for the current solo novel I'm working on too, but we'll talk about that in a second. But going into a different position in higher education really impacted initially my um, ability to uh, spend time on my creative work. Um, but now I think I've got a really good handle of it now. So I think I'm pretty good. Thank you, Chaz, for that. Oh, yes, for sure. And we were also navigating the pandemic at the time. So mm-hmm. there were a lot of things that were changing at the time. And and I also had moved. I moved from LA, West Hollywood to 
San Francisco during that time too. A lot, Fred and I lives kind of overlap a lot in similarities. Mm-hmm. So um, we that book was challenging in that aspect. Oh yeah, that was like our pandemic book. Do you remember when it, the fires were horrible and then in San Francisco, the kind of like what just happened in New York, it was just a whole day of ash and orange. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you did set us up nicely for our, our last question before we move into our, our this, this or that. So <laughs> In the episode notes, you all, we will put the link to their author um, pages where you can look at the novels that they have already published. But what what's next for both of you as far as projects? What should the people be looking forward to in terms of your creative pieces that are coming, that are forthcoming? All right. So I'm currently working on a novel that is, and the deadline is coming up so quickly. I'm going to have to ask for an extension. Um, but I'm working on a, a novel right now for Bold Strokes Books. It's called uh, One and Done, and it does feature two uh, higher education professionals. One is a um, one is a high level administrator at a university. The other character, who will eventually become the love interest, is one of those like um, accreditation people who come to the campus to do the accreditation process for this university. And they butt heads at each other. And you know what happens when there's that butting of heads and that tension? They really like each other. And so that's what One and Done is going to feature as this couple, um, Dr. Taylor James and Dr. Dustin McMillan, um, who are going to navigate um, the thrills and the roller coaster ride of having to work together, that forced, forced proximity, um, kind of not liking each other professionally, but also knowing that they are, they're like just heated and seething and, and love and desire and passion for each other as they sit across these rooms and everything. And so um, that's the pro that's the project I'm working on now, one and done. It should be out in either spring or summer of 2024. Um, so just in time for pride season in the upcoming year. Okay. Heated. I'm looking forward to that, Fred. Um, me, so I'm a storyteller. I love telling stories. I love writing um, fiction and like, cause fiction can have so many like truths and Inside of it, truths inside of it. And so I'm taking a step back from writing novels and I'm dabbling into screenwriting. And I would love to be able to see some of the stories I create on the screen. So now I'm trying to um, write as much as I can and get into some kind of fellowship or um, some something so I can get my foot into screenwriting. And it's helpful that I'm my partner is a wonderful storyteller and screenwriter too. So I'm getting a lot of inside notes of how to do things. Because writing a novel and then writing for the screen is quite different. Um, But once you uh, master that skill, it's wonderful. Well, thank you both. Um, What we like to do next part of our interview is it's called This or That. So it's for, uh, you have to choose for, I can never say, (laughs) forest choice. Um, And you can can take a minute to explain, but no middle ground, no hanging on the fence, okay? So let us know. The Bay Area or L.A.? L.A. L.A. <laughs> but the Bay Area is beautiful physically. Wonderful. Geographically, beautiful gowns, um, lots of nice landscape. The people are nice and down to earth and friendly. I don't have to think about fashion or buying clothes here. Oh. Which has saved me so much money. Honey, I heard shit. Because in LA, in LA, I was in the mall every Friday after work. I was in the mall buying outfits for my weekend brunches and everything. But San Francisco has been wonderful for me professionally and personally. Um, LA, I just like the sun and the warmth. Yeah. Yeah. So d- does your answer change if it's LA Pride or San Francisco Pride? 
No, it's always going to be L.A. for me. L.A. Pride, L.A. Living. Though, like Grandpa said, you would think on paper there are so many wonderful things about the Bay of San Francisco. <clears throat> like transportation. I don't like driving a lot in the city, but I'm, I'm an Angelino, so I drive everywhere. But the stuff, I don't know, but L.A. is home. It's a little bit more fun, too. And what I like about the <laughs> Bay Area, now that we're doing comparing and contrasting, you know, I brought a car up here from L.A. I don't know why I brought a car here, because I never use it. It just yeah. sits in front of my apartment building. I'm surprised it hasn't gotten broken into because it just literally sits there. I might go out when I have to buy bulk items at like, you know, one of the warehouse stores or something. But otherwise, my car sits there. San Francisco Pride, I do have to say, just has this historical magic about it compared to yeah. uh, LA and West Hollywood because San Francisco is rooted in the politics and the activism and a lot of the history that really made the movement for the whole country. And so, you know, like they say now, where California goes, the rest of the US goes. And so, you know, San Francisco really was the home of um, prides. I know New York might disagree, but San Francisco really, you know, is the birthplace of, uh, of a movement around pride. And so I would say San Francisco pride might have a slight edge, okay. although we don't have the name brand entertainers that LA gets. I was so jealous about Megan and Mariah. And yeah, Grace Jones. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Also, I think being yeah. Black and queer is different in the Bay in LA. So that's also why I choose LA. Okay. So if you had to binge a show, would you binge Pose or watch Paris is Burning? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to say Pose just because it's more current and recent, but it also builds upon the work of Paris is Burning. Um, which I think are both important pieces of um, art for us and our communities. Same, I would say, and I love, I like them both. I love them both. Yeah, yeah. Pose, I will watch that. Okay. Speaking of art, if you had to listen to one album over and over again, would you listen to Lemonade or Renaissance? Oh, hands down, hands down, Renaissance, Renaissance. Although Lemonade, I think, in terms of the theme, well, no, they're both important. I love Renaissance, <laughs> and and it. I love Renaissance. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna stick with my answer, Renaissance, because Renaissance really is about the celebration of Black queer communities, identities, the mm-hmm. history, and the present. Lemonade, I love because it really elevates Black women's stories and experiences, and especially what Beyonce if the rumors are correct, allegedly, you know, really respects her coming out of a space where she could come to um, uh, see things differently in her life, mm-hmm. personally. That's all I'll say about that. But yeah, I think Renaissance, Renaissance, Renaissance. And plus the name of my high school in Detroit, Renaissance. So I gotta go with Renaissance. You know, this isn't an easy one for me. So it's not a hands down Renaissance because you gonna put respect on Lemonade's name. But... <laughs> I would probably have to say Renaissance as well. And I don't feel good about saying that, but it'll be Renaissance. Yeah, you can blame me. Thank you both for taking your time, dropping the gems, us learning more about you as creatives, about your process, about your love and friendship for one another. So thank you. And that is all we have for you for these Scholar T Streets. Shauna, Shauna, you were missed, but had a wonderful, wonderful conversation. 
with Frederick and Chaz. And I, I love that we invited them into Scholarty because we always talk with academics, our administrators in higher education, but to see Black queer men really think about what are their talents, what do they have to say, and then how do they share those in a way that speaks to their innovation, their creativity, but also honors the lives of Black queer people, that filled my cup. So hopefully the listeners will take away some of those gems that they dropped. And hey, if you are thinking about that screenplay, that podcast, that novel, no time like the present. I just think it underscores our emphasis on other ways of knowing. Absolutely. All right. So really quickly, Shauna, I want to talk about what's problematic. And as I enter into my ninth year post PhD in the academy, uh, this is my grandfather. (laughs) This this is my, I'm entering to my sixth year at Florida State University and starting the fall semester with tenure and as an associate professor. I've been thinking a lot about the hidden curriculum, the unwritten curriculum of the promotion and tenure process, because you and I have talked about this. There's horror stories out there. And I just was really blessed with a process that was affirming, that was inclusive, um, that really didn't have me questioning my institution or the people that I work with. Um, And there have been opportunities where people of color, Black people, have been recruited to these institutions and departments and saying like, hey, this is your research package. This is what we can offer you. This is what the promotion and tenure process looks like. And they get there and it's the okie doke. This is what you said the process was. And then when I hold the mirror up to you and say, hey, what's going on here? And you're like, well, no, this is the process now. The other part of that is thinking about um, how people have flipped the scripts on the expectations of not only the process, but then the expectations of promotion and tenure. And we've heard those horror stories either personally or you know publicly when thinking about people um, in the more public eye. So for me, what's problematic is really thinking critically about pulling the not only the curtain back on the hidden curriculum or the unwritten curriculum at each institute because each institution has has these has these practices, but the larger conversation now of of promotion and tenure. Um, and people trying to take it away, right? That's that's a layer of this. But when we sell the okie doke to people of color, get them to the institution and then don't support them through the process. Drag it out. You tell them some of them can expedite the process and then you actually drag that out too. Um, what are some suggestions, Cameron, that you would offer folks that might be going through that? You know, since you've gone now through the process yourself, you kind of have a sense of some of the expectations that might be uh, at play for most folks that are going through that process. What are some ways that you think uh, faculty could counteract some of those, un, I guess, unwritten rules that they might encounter? Yeah, that's, I think that's a great question, um, Shauna, to think more critically. For me, it's understanding your context, right? If you're a pre-tenure person and on the tenure track, if they haven't assigned you a mentor, you need to seek a mentor that has been through the tenure process or somebody that's actually on the promotion and tenure review committee from your department uh, or at the department level. I think that is instrumental uh, when thinking about understanding the politics and the personalities of your program and department. The other thing is to think about people outside of your college or department and people that have tenure as well, and specifically maybe people of color, for them to really give you feedback on your materials and thinking about how they translate, you know, larger university community of your impact in your in your work and thinking about 
what was their process like in their program or their department, right? So here at the Florida State University, the College of Music looked real different. Dance looks real different. Even sociology in some regard looks real different than what we do in the College of Education. And being able to have conversations with those people about what their processes look like helped me ask the questions in my department and interrogate our, our own process and, and what we do. The other thing is to be a scholar of the community in the sense of outside of your bubble of your institution, because you're going to have people that have to evaluate your work outside of that. If those people can evaluate your work in a way that's glowing and it speaks to your contribution, then you can hold your institution accountable when they come back with the okie doke of like, oh, you need more time or blah, blah, blah. And I can say this leading scholar in the field had talked about my contributions of my work. I'm also privileged to be in a... Um, a sunshine state. Florida has its, I know Florida got its issues, but my process was also extremely transparent. So I saw who they asked to write letters. I saw the letter, like I could ask to see the letters that people wrote on my behalf. So being really clear about the process at your state or institute, if you're at a public state institution and what the laws are, but also being clear about the process in terms of the governance of the institution and making sure your department or your college is following the what's what the institution says is the policy and and the practice and holding people accountable in writing so when you get that offer letter and they talk about you know we're negotiating your offer and you could be able to go up early that needs to be in the letter i think that's duh but i'm i'm going to check my own privilege because not everybody knows that things like that maybe some people just think it's the it's the salary the benefits and and the you know the research startup funds that need to be in that offer letter all of that needs to be spelled out in in when you negotiate that if you're going somewhere with tenure being really clear before you step foot or sign on that dotted line what the tenure promotion process is and making sure that you negotiate that the tenure needs to be secured before i get there um, and not getting the okie doke or the runaround around that. Some people have been told, oh, you'll come in with tenure. They get to the institution and go. they'll have to go through the review process when they get there and they go through the review process and then there's pushback. So those are things that I think that just have to be negotiated and spelled out up front and then put in writing very, very clear. So those are my tips. Y'all got some tips. Holla at us so we can share those tips with, with the listening audience. But Shana, that's what's problematic this week, the unwritten rules of tenure and promotion. Well, and I think, you know, now that you have moved forward with the tenure promotion process, you know, maybe having some more focused conversations around that as you learn more, let's make sure we continue to embed that in our conversations because I think it's important. And also knowing if you want to do the process, the process is, can be demoralizing. You really get the curtain pulled back about the academy. And is that something that you want? Because to me, you're playing the game. If you want to do the promotion and tenure process, you are now playing the game of the academy in higher education. And you need to humanize the process for yourself, but it's a it can be a dehumanizing process and really mm -hmm. understanding that. So let's lighten the mood because we need to <clears> understand What's, pro what's problematic, but we also need to understand how to laugh and enjoy life. So come to us, Shauna, with them jokes of the week. Okay. I want to preface this first one. Don't hate me. I'm stealing this one from Kev on stage. We're going to see how this one goes. Okay. You're going to criticize me. I can feel it. Look at your face. Okay. How much Moet is in the mighty jungle? How much Moet is in the mighty jungle? There's too much going on. I'm sorry. I can't guess. A wee Moet. A wee Moet. A wee Moet. <laughs> Come on, Moet. Come on, Moet. <laughs> Come on, Moet. <laughs> Shandon Moet. Oh, uh, hello. Where do bad rainbows go? Bad rainbows. With the unicorns? 
prism, it's a light sentence and it gives them time to reflect. (laughs) I love a smart joke. That's a smart joke. (laughs) The person who created autocorrect has died. Restaurant in peace. I don't get it. (laughs) Because I went to type in rest in peace, but it said it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a minute. I'm sorry. That was me. That was me. Delay, delay, delay. I got it. (laughs) What is Terrence Howard's favorite menu item at Benihana? Low main. Low main. (laughs) I was like, I get your Terrence Howard jokes. I was just like, I got to connect it. Yep, yep, yep. Got it, got it. Okay, okay. Who would Terrence Howard call if he were about to get in a tussle? In a tussle? My main? I don't know. Aqua main. (laughs) You see that bat? You see the bat signal? You gonna have someone jump out off a boat to come tussle with you. You need Aqua main. Oh, got you, got you. Because of what happened in Mm -hmm. Alabama. Got you. Okay, okay. (laughs) The Montgomery bra. Come on. It's not that old. I know. I need my coffee. I need my coffee. (laughs) Y'all got that one, right? The people got it. They got it. They got it. Goodness gracious. (laughs) I was really proud of that one, too. Golly. Well, (laughs) we'd like to first recognize Luke Wood on his recent appointment as president of California State University, Sacramento. Many congrats to Dr. Ariel Ashley, newly minted associate professor for earning tenure promotion at St. Cloud State University. Also, congratulations to Stacey Garrett, who has earned tenure promotion at Appalachian State University. And many congrats to our dear friend, Dr. Cameron Beatty, for earning his new position on the ASH Board of Directors. Congratulations, everybody. Thank y'all for trusting me and voting for me. I appreciate y'all. Well, it's time to get to work. Benazir Bhutto, Former Prime Minister of Pakistan once noted, democracy is the best revenge. While living in a land often viewed as the great democratic experiment, the deterioration of true democracy has been underway since this land was first colonized. To expect a foundation built on unstable ideologies to remain solvent in the face of adversity is a misstep. Still, there is hope in the future ahead. Creators like Stacey Robinson remind us that we can imagine new possibilities, design new dreams, and cultivate lives grounded in holistic health and inclusion. We can manifest a burgeoning future together in spite of attempts to undermine our collective material existence. We want to say that this year is going to be one that is fruitful, that is healthy, that is beneficial to your holistic well-being and we want to make sure that you manifest a fantastic academic year. Name it, claim it. Amen. Get that record deal. <laughs> well, this has been a, another episode of Scholar T, another season of Scholar T. We love y'all for listening. We love y'all for keeping the podcast alive. Sean and I have, of course, busy lives, but we keep doing this because it's feeding people and feeding us so we just appreciate y'all for being along for the ride and come find us and uh, hang out with us at ash we're doing another live recording in ash in november 2023 saturday november 18th 12 30 p.m central standard time see y'all at the hilton dun, 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 dun.